And welcome to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. I'm Bart Gregory, along with Charlie Winfield. Still rocking on along. We had a great show last week. Butch Thompson, Lane Burroughs, a couple of guys who were very respected head coaches in college baseball. Spent some time in Starkville. Lane from 09 to 12, Butch from 09 to 15, and well, they shared some great stories. And, Charlie, that was the thing that really stood out to me is just how in-depth their memories are of the time spent here. And when you start talking about some of these recruiting stories of a Chris Stratton, a Hunter Renfro, an Adam Frazier, that's what makes it fun to listen to is the things that we didn't know. And I've been around these guys a lot. They told a lot of stuff last week that I didn't know. They did. The other thing that was really interesting to me was Butch Thompson's recall of detail. All of a sudden, he doesn't just remember the guy hit a home run. He remembers what the count was, uh, what the pitch call was. He remembers how many career appearances somebody had. Their ERA down to you know the 100th decimal point. It's absolutely phenomenal, the recall they have. And it was just really cool that two head coaches in college baseball would spend some time talking about Mississippi State. Dorado's pitching. There's barbecue sauce, fly, <laughs> barbecue sauce flying in the outfield. I was <laughs> laughed about that. For, and for the context, if you didn't hear it, they were telling the story of Chad Dorado before he became the dominant relief pitcher he was getting hit hard. It was Super Bulldog weekend, like a 15-2 game, and Lane Burroughs telling the story of, now there goes another one. Barbecue sauce is flying in the lounge. That <laughs> 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 oh, was phenomenal. Well, our thanks once again to our friends at uh, Farm Bureau, our presenting sponsor. Boy, Farm Bureau, they've had a a hard couple of weeks down in South Mississippi. You had the tornadoes a couple of weeks ago. Then you had another batch come through this past weekend. And with all the COVID-19 issues going on, they are giving back $30 million to their customers. They're going to credit their customers over $30 million. That's a six-state area. And then the Mississippi Group of Farm Bureau is donating $500,000 to the Mississippi Food Network. And so, boy, Henry Hamill and, and the fine guys at Mississippi Farm Bureau, we talked to Jeffrey Ray just a couple of weeks ago, that organization doing its best to get the state of Mississippi back and rolling again. Okay, Charlie, so last week talking with Butch Thompson and Lane Burroughs, that really opened our eyes about – new ways of doing things. And one of the things that I thought that was so great, you talk about the behind the scenes, to me there was there are no better guys to talk to than managers and trainers to really get the behind the scenes of exactly what goes on. And that's one of the reasons we chose a couple of guys, John Mooney, John Burt. John Mooney was here, what, 1990 to 1992. John Burt, we, everybody called him Tank. I always remember coming to ball games as a kid and watching Tank shag fly balls in the outfield during BP. It was phenomenal, 93 to 97. And so we talked to those guys, and the reason is the statute of limitations is pretty much run out on all the stories, so no one can really get arrested for anything they may could possibly say. So we talked to those guys, and then later in the show, we're going to talk to Janet Marie Smith, who is a renowned architect in Major League Baseball, drew up the plans for Camden Yards, She's worked with the Baltimore Orioles, the Atlanta Braves with Turner Field, Fenway Park, and now with the Los Angeles Dodgers. She's a Mississippi State architecture graduate, and she's originally from Jackson, and she's going into the Mississippi Sports Hall of Fame this coming summer. Here's some things. I want to talk to, to John Mooney and John Burt because they provide just a completely 
different thought process of everything that goes on around a baseball program. They do, and I want to talk to Janet Marie Smith because I'm interested in the way that baseball stadiums have changed. Think back to when we were young. You think of Riverfront in Cincinnati. You think of just these sterile, generic stadiums where, by the way, they play football and baseball at the same time. Think back how many pictures of football in the NFL do you see where somebody's getting tackled in the dirt of the infield, and then you come along to Camden Yards where it is, it's a baseball stadium that's being built, not a football stadium. Not only are you building a stadium, but you're building something that fits in with the community and really is that throwback type thing. And then along those lines, you talk about playability. The things I remember about Riverfront and about the old bush and Three Rivers is so much foul territory and how it changes the game. You think about how it changes the game into more of a pitcher's ballpark, into more of a hitter's ballpark, thus the fans come more. Think about how many times in the course of a game in 1978 you would have seen a pop-up behind the home plate that the catcher would have been able to go back and catch. That room is all gone now. We brought the fans forward. How many balls even at Duty Noble Field would have been fly balls that were just in foul territory? Somebody ranges over, catches it, it's an out. Now it's in the berm. These stadiums not only change the fan experience, they change the play on the game. So this week we've got a good one for you. It's John Moody and John Burt, a couple of former Bulldog managers, talking about the behind the scenes back in the 1990s. And then Janet Marie Smith later in the show talking about stadium architecture in Major League Baseball and her time spent in Starkville at Mississippi State. Back with more on Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Mark Gregory, Charlie Winfield. It's time now for our look back segment, brought to you by Country Pleasing Sausage Country Meat Packers down in Florence, Mississippi. Go by and see them down on Highway 49. Well, go inside the butcher shop. They've got all kind of things in the butcher shop, the different varieties of sausage, the prime rib, the aged beef, the chicken. All kind of different things. and Now to the phones where we've got a couple guys who were managers at Mississippi State. John Mooney, John Burke. Guys, appreciate you joining us. And, uh, you know, last week we had a lot of talk with uh, Butch Thompson and Lane Burroughs about stories behind the scenes, and it was really well received. And you know, first and foremost, John, you were here in 1990 to 1992. Uh, Tank, you were here, what, 93 to 97, is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. And so both of you guys had opportunities of going to the College World Series. What was your big memory behind the scenes of going to the College World Series in your time at Mississippi State? First, you, Mooney. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, first of all, I can't believe it's been 30 years. We, uh, I got a reminder on my phone today. I was supposed to fly out today and head this weekend. We were going to have a reunion for the 30th uh, 1990 College World Series team. So. Uh, with everything going on, it, it brings back some memories. One, I can't believe it's been 30 years. But behind the scenes is it was such a blur with the Sunday being only able to play one game and having to finish on Memorial Day. And we pretty much back in the locker room first things Tuesday morning and the wheels were spinning. We had to try to get all the equipment together, get all the uniforms washed, bring both sets because you're going to be home and away on the road. 
and just getting all the equipment up there. We bust up to Memphis, flew out, and it was just a whirlwind. And then there's nothing better than you see it on the TV as a kid growing up, just walking into Roseblatt. Uh, you come up the hill uh, and see the stadium. And it, I think it was very it, it was very fitting for our guys coming off the 89 team with the disappointment of not going to Omaha. And we had a lot of guys on that team. And I was really, really happy for a lot of those guys. And, and I was just glad to be along for the ride. All right, Tank. You had your trip to Omaha late in your career. You were here ninety three to ninety seven and then and then getting to go in nineteen ninety seven because let's be honest, ninety three, ninety four, ninety five were not those big time years that we were accustomed to. You're you're correct about that. Um similar to Mooney, in, in ninety seven, you know, we got behind in our regional with rain. The whole tournament got behind. And we didn't finish not on Sunday, we finished on Monday. But we were the last team to get to Omaha. Uh, we got out late. We couldn't get flights the next day. We didn't fly out until maybe it was Thursday and got there late. But more once we got there, it was a whirlwind, like Mooney said, getting uniforms, getting patches sewn on. Boy, it, it was really a – it was a whirlwind. John Mooney, we get to know a lot of these players from the stands and have kind of one perception of them. We have our perceptions of the coaches – who was the guy on the team back that 1990-92 period who was probably, in, in your view, the most different from what people thought about them? A lot of the guys, it, it is what you see is what you get out on the field. But, I mean, I, I'd have to go with one of my good friends. I was in his wedding is, is Chuck Daniel. He was there all three of those years that I was there uh, after we left in 92. Uh, he was down in New Orleans going to law school, and his wife was in dental school. And so we used to play a lot of golf together, and I got to know him. He is as intense as they get um, on the field. He was very competitive. He would the, the last game when we lost to UCLA, he was getting – his back was going out, and he was in the dugout just getting treatment from Strad in between innings and gave it everything he had. But off the field, he would do anything for you. He helped me a lot. Um, outside of uh, in life, getting me through a lot of different situations along the way. Um, but then you see somebody out on the field, but then when you get away from the field, some guys are a little bit different. But Chuck's one of my good friends today. I texted him this morning, still keep in touch with him, and uh, great guy. You know, you can make the argument, by the way, that Chuck Daniel, perhaps one of the most underrated players of the early 90s, that guy did it in the field, he did it at the plate, he did it on the mound. That was a versatile guy. Yeah, and, and when you guys did your draft early in the year, um, I don't believe you guys drafted him, and I kept rooting for and thinking that you did. But, yeah, Chuck was uh, redshirted in 88, 89, and 90. He was a relief pitcher. And then uh, in 91, 92, he was our starting third baseman and then also a reliever and then started for us in the the regional that last game against UCLA. But, yeah, Chuck, Chuck had a great career. It's Surreal, I guess might be the right word. His two kids are at Mississippi State now. Uh, one's a basketball manager, and his daughter's on the golf team. So it's weird going back to town 30 years later, and guys that I'm good friends with, their kids are now in school there. Looking back at certain players early, 93, 94, you know, a lot of the fans just see the competitive part of a player mostly. You know, that was right there at the last of the foster parents, which were they were really close to the players, but – you, you know, you only saw the competitor part maybe out of a Jay Powell, but he was so fun and so funny on the bus rides and, and, and in practice, too. And then Gary Roth, right after that, you know, a guy that 
he was a good friend of mine, but he, he was always going to give us a competitive win on Friday night. He was so much fun, too. He was a funny guy. Guys, Charlie and I have worked closely with Ron Polk in the past, and we all have some great funny stories about Coach Ron Polk, whether it be Joe Deere giving him a three-and-a-half floppy disc and saying, here's a copy of your signees, and he walks in with a, a case knife and opens up the disc and says, I don't see him in here at all. I mean, we understand Coach Polk. He was a baseball-driven guy. He was kind of funny away from the baseball field. Mooney, what's your favorite Ron Polk story, whether it be with an umpire or behind the scenes? What do you remember about Coach Polk? I think the thing about Coach Polk is his attention to detail. Uh, I still, uh, all of us, managers, uh, players, we get the birthday card, uh, we get the Christmas card, and we get the anniversary card. And, and he knows how many years I've been married. Uh, he knows how old I am, and so it's like clockwork every year. But the one story that always sticks out to me is Coach Polk treated the managers. He treated us just like a player, and we we had responsibilities. We had to show up on time. Um, a lot of times we had to show up before practice, and one of his requirements was he had to uh, you had to wear long pants when you were out on the road and uh, before a pregame meal. We always ate four hours before a game, whether it was at home or on the road. And we go down to Jackson. This is, I think, during the 90 season. And I get my room, open up my bag, and I said a few choice words at that point because I didn't realize I didn't have any long pants. All I had was shorts. So myself and Joel Matthews, uh, neither one of us had. Uh, Coach Polk says, well, I'll see you back uh, when we get back in town. And the rule was you had to run a mile, six laps around the hump um, on the concourse. And the beginning of the season, it started at, I want to say, 645. And every time somebody had to run, it got knocked down a second. And so mine was probably, I don't know, 6.30, probably 6.35 at that time. And Joel and I run. About half the team shows up and encouraging myself and Joel. Joel makes it. And I'm struggling to keep up. And I get to the line. Coach Folk's there with his cigar and his stopwatch. And he looks at it and goes, I can't do the good Coach Folk voice. But he goes, well, John, see you tomorrow. I had missed it. And I'm thinking, really? And it took me about three, four more times or whatever. And, and after that, it was just me and him on the concourse, and I'd run any time. And each time I missed, he said, see you tomorrow. I tell you what, I never I never missed another pregame meal without having long pants on the road again. Uh, hey, Tank, did Coach Polk ever make yeah. you run? No, and I made sure that I didn't do anything, <laughs> no player in the equipment room, because I can assure you I wouldn't have made it. It would have took several chances for me to make it. So, um but, guys, Coach Polk, you know, he talked about he's, he's done that on Twitter where he gets thrown out at Arkansas one night. Yeah. Back in the day, we were at, we were up at Arkansas, and he gets thrown out. And so that's when the SEC office would fax a thing, and we'd go by the front desk because we didn't have cell phones. And so when we didn't have cell phones, the only way to communicate with parents to players would either be there or they would call their room, the hotel and room number and all that. We get a fax from the SEC office on Saturday that said, hey, we took it to pregame meal and said, hey, Coach Polk, you got a reprimand from the SEC office. You know, you didn't have to set out a game back then. You just got a reprimand. And Coach Polk says, just throw it in the garbage. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I said, yeah, sure thing. Coach. You know, so, yeah. You get thrown out back then, you get a reprimand, he just said, just throw it in the garbage. Yeah. That's beautiful. <laughs> Mooney, I would think back, and obviously we've all talked so much about 1990 and the season and the 
regional tournament to beat Florida State, get to the College World Series. I was thinking back, kind of the last year of your career, I think the game that really stands out to me is hosting a regional, first game, B.J. Wallace, 10 innings on the mound against Nichols State. What do you remember about that game? Yeah, that's that's one I, I always think back. We again, when y'all did that draft early in the year, and you mentioned BJ's name. I believe it was nineteen strikeouts, and, and I, I want to say we won one nothing on a wild pitch in the bottom of the the tenth. And I can't remember if it was Ricky Joe or or if it was Rex that scored, but yeah, it was it was surreal. And and I look back on that and go, how dominant he was in that game, and. And, and you guys are much more Mississippi State historians than myself, but I'd be hard-pressed to find a better pitching performance in one game. Or even that in that season that he had that year, I ended up being the third pick in the draft that year by the Expos. But it was just unreal, the domination that he had in that game. And I talked to some of the Nichols guys after the game and the next day during the tournament, he cut their pitcher, can't remember how many innings he went, but to hold us to one run over 10 innings, uh, you kind of feel bad for the guy, but to have a front row seat on that, and, and my son's about to be 13 next week, and, and he's playing ball, and I talked to him about that. It, it was just, it was just total domination, and to have a front row seat, uh, I just feel honored and privileged to to witness what DJ did that night. Tank, we've talked a lot about that regional in 1997 when Eric DeBose just kind of you know put the team on his back and had some outstanding pitching efforts. We talked about you know the left-hander and Wallace. You had the left-hander and DeBose, and there was a lot of pressure. He felt like in 1990 to get to the World Series after '89. I know there had to be that pressure in '97. What's your big memory of that uh, regional tournament where the Bulldogs finally pushed back to Omaha? Uh, you know, a lot of people. Do not forget that, you know, DuBose pitched two games in that regional. He pitched Thursday, and then it got pushed back, rain, 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 and he pitched again for us on Monday, correct? That's absolutely Uh, right. There's pictures of it out there, but Brooks Bryan jumping over the right field wall and robbing that ball to keep it in the park against Washington. Oh, boy. Magruder. (laughs) If he don't do that, we don't go. And we hold on by a thread and – I think Barry Patton hits a chopping ground ball up the middle that just sees its way through to score a run or two there to get us ahead and hold on for the win. We're talking to John Mooney and John Bird here on the Out of Left Field Show. Mississippi State, legends of the manager world. We'll continue with these stories when we come back right here on Out of Left Field presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Mark Gregory, Charlie Winfield. We're talking to former Bulldog managers John Mooney and John Burt. John Mooney here in 1990-1992. John Burt, Tank here in 93-97. Mooney, I think back to one of my memories in the early 90s. You know, there was such a transition after that 1990 season. Because you show up in 91, there's a brand-new team out there. All those fifth years that you talked about are now gone. And you got guys like a Steve Hagan, and all of a sudden you got a shortstop by the name of Paul Petrulis. And the thing I remember about Petrulis was just the absolute explosions that would come from the dugout if he ever struck out. Was Petrulis uh, as a wild a guy as he seemed to be? Yeah, when uh, I had to chuckle last week, I was out in the garage working when y'all were running through the shortstops and going down. And when you told that story, 
I think I might have been coming up the uh, the tunnel from the equipment room once or twice when uh, he might not have had a successful at bat <laughs> and he might have uh, taken his frustrations out on a trash can or two. But yeah, it's uh, the Patrols. The one thing you give that guy is he was a competitor out on the field, and I mean most, if not all, the guys are. When they, when they get between the lines or whatever, they get it. But as you mentioned, uh, yeah, we had some guys that uh, didn't play a whole lot before, whether it be a Jimmy Gamble, a Joey Hamilton. Uh, Rex Buckner played a lot towards the end of 90, but he started out in left field. Uh, Rex is another one uh, that had a solid four-year career uh, in the early 90s. But what I remember about the 91 season was I, I mentioned earlier is the rain. But I think that trip to Maine, um, that's one place I've been telling my wife and kids, I want to go back up there. I haven't been back since that 91 year. But just the experience of uh, Stephen King being at the games to uh, a packed house on Friday night when we played Maine, I had the privilege of beating them. Uh, The next day, us and Clemson are undefeated. I uh, played golf with Rob Norman a few years ago and told him the story. Rob Norman hit an absolute bomb but their foul pole was maybe three feet tall and it was so high. I'm, I'm convinced to this day the ball was gone and that and they called it foul. And then I believe Rob got out after that. But if that call had gone our way, we probably could have potentially gone back to Omaha again that year. Clemson was absolutely loaded that year, but it was a lot of new guys, a lot of guys that had been around for a while whether Jeff Mackin and Eddie Lyons had had redshirted. But that 91 was a a special year because we spent a lot of time in rain delays hanging out and getting to know each other. But to end it, uh, it was bittersweet to absolutely beautiful up in Maine. To end it that way, it was kind of bittersweet. Tank, Mooney touched on it just a moment ago about that competitive spirit of Paul Petrulis. When people ask me all the time about, you know, what's the separator with really good players and the great players and what it may take for some guys to get to the major leagues. It's amazing how the guys that you can count on, the guys that can just get after it and turn it on every time they get between the lines, that cutthroat mentality. Who was the guy that you remember of just having that will to win more than anybody else? Brad Freeman. He he practiced hard. It didn't matter what he was doing. Brad Freeman went at it 110%. You know, he, he, he absolutely got after it in everything he was doing. And um, he was just that type, that type of kid, man. He, he would, no matter what he was doing, he would do it 110. He could just go. You know, Petrulis was there in 93 when I got there. And, um, and, you know, he would always burst in. But nobody was safe in the first base box over there because he was going to launch one in that box on a ground ball at least once a game, it seemed like. And there was no nets over there, so he would he would always throw one in that box over there by first base. Guys, I'm curious. Appreciate y'all spending the time with us, by the way. But I'm I'm curious the things we haven't talked about. What's your big memory of your time at Mississippi State? Whether it was a special place you went on the road that where you enjoyed it, a, a regional tournament, a moment, a, a Coach Polk story. What what's your what's your big moment that that you remember? I think it's the just everything uh it's the lasting memories that i have there uh we went my wife and kids we went back this fall to the egg bowl and i mean that stadium i got a tour of it the equipment room is is unbelievable the, the facility i mean it is unbelievable but one thing that doesn't change i think are the people uh the fans i ran into you mentioned steve hagan earlier uh, i ran into steve polk as well 
uh, out tailgating before the game. And the, the fans do not change. The people the people in Mississippi are some of the nicest people you will ever meet in the entire world. And more specifically, the Mississippi State fans are, are incredible. I went to Starkville. I think I knew one person when I got on campus. And it felt like home the second I was there. And 30 years later, going back, it still feels that way. The memory, I mean, I could go on for hours talking about, I remember Georgia in 91, going to Charlie Williams Steakhouse, uh, being a little scared, Big E driving the bus up that back road. But then we just sat down at that all-you-can-eat buffet, and, and I don't think we left for a couple hours. It's just the, the, the times and memories like that, and, and I still keep in touch with a lot of the guys. Uh, social media makes it a lot easier these days and to keep up with it. And knowing, yeah, we're getting old, um, but still, it's just Starkville and the city state. Uh, it, it's a very special place. Tank, what about you? What are you? What, what memories do you take from their time at state? I'll take the time to try to name them all, but the coaches and and the administration staff that took care of Tank was unbelievable you know what i'm saying you take uh the first year mitch thompson who's at mcclendon community college out in texas steve jonigan who's still at baylor you know and steve smith oh wow man did they take care of tank you know now i worked hard we had to work hard during camp and mooney i tell you that those are long long days but they took care of me and then not long ago you know raffo showed up after um coach thompson had left and went to auburn and then it was raffo and Jonigan and Smith, and when Coach McMahon came, it was Tim Parrington and Coach McMahon. Golly, they took care of me. You know those those people. And, and and above that, my first year there, you know Scott Strickland was around in media relations. And I'm telling you right now, I was a manager, but Scott Strickland would speak to me right now. I was coming to a basketball game right before Christmas, walking through the parking lot, and a guy come to a stop, and my sons were right there with me, and the guy rolled his window down, and he spoke to me, and he asked me how I was doing. And I said, I was doing really good. And I just want to thank you for everything you'd ever done for me. It was Larry Templeton. Those people never forgot about us, you know, even managers. They, you know, they knew what we were doing and, and how many hours we worked. And they never were too big for us. All of those guys that were in administration, Bobby Tomlinson, they always worked with you and treated you like somebody. And they still do. And they still speak to you. And all of those coaches, man, wow, what relationships that still go on. That I'll never. That, those are the kind of things I'll never forget. Guys, we appreciate you joining us. It's been fun. Mm-hmm. Thank y'all. Well, thanks, Moody. Thanks, Tank. We'll come back and talk to Janet Marie Smith, architect, Mississippi State grad, Jackson native, kind of a trendsetter when it comes to architecture and professional baseball. Right here on Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Bart Gregory and Charlie Winfield. It's time now for our guest line segment, brought to you by Heartland Catfish, our good friends over at Heartland in the Mississippi Delta. Highway 82, just on the other side of Greenwood, Itabina. And this week, featuring Charlie's Catfish House in Ellisville. Down on Highway 11, Charlie's Catfish House. Charlie's eating there so much, they named the place after him. No, not really. But Charlie's Catfish, if you go to so many different catfish restaurants, you can get the fillets, you can get nuggets. There are so many different ways of getting catfish. But at Charlie's, the special 
without doubt, is that whole fried catfish. The whole fried catfish. You can pick around the bones. A lot of folks love to do that. I do. That whole fried catfish at Charlie's Catfish House on Highway 11 in Ellisville. And this, of course, brought to you by our good friends at Heartland Catfish. And let's go to the Heartland Hotline where Janet Marie Smith, Mississippi State graduate, Jackson, Mississippi native, joins us. And we know it's a busy time for you. And with everything that's going on at Dodger Stadium right now, working with the Los Angeles Dodgers, and we appreciate you taking some busy time to join us this afternoon. Well, I'm delighted to. I just wish we were busy because we were playing baseball. We're busy because we're just doing construction and not playing baseball. Janet Marie, when you look at your time at Mississippi State and you come through the architectural school, what was the thing that really stood out to you? I mean, when some people come out, they decide, hey, I'm going to design a skyscraper or I'm going to design homes. I'm going to design so many different things. Was there something that clicked in your time at State or early on? What made you think, hey, I want to build baseball stadiums or stadiums for sporting events? Well, I didn't think about that at all. (laughs) I mean, that was like the furthest thing from my mind. I think what I really got out of my time at the architecture school at Mississippi State and the many, many hours I spent in the communications program, which is where I took most of my electives, was that I really enjoyed managing projects. And even though uh, traditional architectural programs like the one at Mississippi State really put a heavy emphasis on architects uh, in their traditional role as designers. Um, one of the things that I loved about Mississippi State's program, particularly as being Bill McMinn had scripted it, was that we were exposed to so many lecturers from all over the country, so many field trips that took us all over the country. Uh, a focused year in our fifth year in Jackson, Mississippi, where we were looking at urban issues. And I came out of that eager not to design in the way you would expect, but rather to be in a position where I could influence the design by managing projects. And so I set off a course to do that, and the sports weather came later. And, I mean, what a blessing that's been. I've just loved working in baseball, but it wasn't something I aspired to when I was in college. Influenced by, for sure, because the School of Architecture's building was over there near Duty Noble so if we wanted an afternoon outing, that was our closest getaway. I was born in the early 70s. The baseball stadiums of my youth were large, circular football-slash-baseball stadiums, very little character all alike. And then all of a sudden, the stadium takes shape in Baltimore, Camden Yards, with the warehouse out behind it. And it all of a sudden became the stadium I wish my childhood had been. It was the stadium that had this nostalgia. And then we hear, you know what? This was a Mississippi State graduate who put all this together. What went into developing Camden Yards and the design, the decision to keep that warehouse and to create an old stadium that was brand new? Well, I give Mississippi State School of Architecture program a lot of credit for instilling in me an interest in cities, not just in individual buildings. And after college, I ended up getting a master's degree in planning and worked in New York on a project that was very contextual in nature. And so when I had a chance to apply for the job in Baltimore, working for the baseball team on what we now know as Oriole Park at Camden Yards, 
the thing that really drew me to that was not just that it was baseball. That was magical. But the fact that there was the baseball team led by President and CEO Larry Lupino saying they wanted to be not just in the city, but of the city. Uh, Larry's mantra was we want to be baseball only. We want to be urban. We want to feel like the old-fashioned ballparks. We want it to instantly feel at home. And um, what really resonated with me was a chance to be a part of that urban renaissance. And so I loved being given the opportunity to work, of course, for Larry and, and, and a whole group of engineers, graphic designers, urban planners who, who really believed in the same thing, which was trying to make certain that Baltimore's ballpark felt that it was one with the city, unlike these round multi-purpose stadiums that you just mentioned that had largely been used as urban renewal projects and to clear out cities rather than to mend them together and knit them together. Talking with Janet Marie Smith, Mississippi State graduate, Jackson, Mississippi native, going to be inducted into the Mississippi Sports Hall of Fame later this summer. And Janet Marie, we're talking about the the construction of Camden Yards. You know, it's crazy. Everything in life is sequential. And I know that the, the thought process would have probably come later. But when the thought began of Baltimore building a new stadium, but because Memorial Stadium was rotting, essentially, you were thinking maybe this is going to be a two-sport stadium, and you kind of wonder about Art Modell pulling the Baltimore Colts out in the dead of night, moving to Indianapolis, about how that may have played a small part in the renaissance of Major League Baseball. No, I, no doubt it played a big part. I, I think the stars really aligned for Baltimore in a way that's only clear in hindsight. Uh, the governor, William Donald Schaefer, who was the former mayor of Baltimore, really believed in the city. He knew he had to build a new stadium because, as you say, the Colts had already moved out. He wasn't having a second team leave on his watch. The Orioles had a year-to-year lease. He was afraid they were going to go to Washington, D.C., where half of their fan base was. And so he set out to get funding from the state legislature, but he, he wanted it to be in downtown Baltimore. And there you were with Larry Latino, the Orioles president, saying, it has to be old-time baseball. It has to harken back to the parts of his youth, his Forbes Field, where he'd grown up in Pittsburgh. And, of course, we all had been taught by then, mostly by Larry, but taught by then that, that even though you had these mammoth buildings in Riverfront Stadium, Atlanta, Fulton County Stadium, uh, Three Rivers that held 60,000 fans, Ironically, the teams that drew the largest crowds were the two the two that had the smallest ballparks, the Cubs and the Red Sox. So in Larry's mind, there's like there's something to that, right? There's something to uh, the way fans respond to an intimate experience for baseball. And there we were with a perfect opportunity since um, there was only one major league team in town by that point. Um, the state agreed to essentially a model similar to Kansas City's, where there would be a baseball-only park, and then eventually a football came back, and it did when the the Ravens, you know, were, were moved from Cleveland, and that became uh, a football-only park. So, you know, th- there are, success has many fathers, and, uh, and, and so we can certainly point to a lineage of many things uh, learned by other cities as they looked at sports venues and cast it out. People often ask me uh, after Camden Yards opened in 1992, what was what, what am I most proud of? What is the thing that I enjoy the most about it? 
and I can point to many things that that I love and that I I have an inside smile when I see it replicated in other cities. But maybe the most important is the fact that more than 20 new ballparks have opened in an urban setting. And I think that's just amazing. You know, it's fun to talk about the fact that they've all been steel trusses, which was something we really fought hard to get in Baltimore, or that there's a masonry facade uh, that resonates with the brick row houses, or that we were able to have a scoreboard that had, you know, these wind vanes that uh, sort of kicked around depending on where the wind was going on the warehouse. But the real fun of it um, is that it's in a city and it's surrounded by the urban vibrancy that comes with being in a city. You mentioned the Boston Red Sox. You mentioned Fenway Park and how it drew. And when I think of the Red Sox, Charlie's a big Yankees fan. I like the Red Sox. And, but you think of tradition. And, of course, you went to Atlanta and worked with the, with the Braves and Turner Field. But then all of a sudden you go back to Boston the words fan experience has turned into such a big buzzword and about the premium seating. I have always had this burning question to ask you because when you went and, and led to a renovation at Fenway, I'd love to know what the room was like when someone walked in and said, hey, let's put seats on top of the Green Monster. Well, that was just a really exciting moment. I Again, there's so many people who must have thought of that before we did, but we were in a position to make it happen. And what I loved about working for John Henry, Tom Warner, and Larry Latino when they bought the Red Sox in 2002 is that of all of the uh, ownership groups that were vying to buy the club, they were the only ones who wanted to stay at Fenway Park. Everyone else was looking to use a new Fenway as an anchor for some other redevelopment. And they were the only ones who looked at it and said, the history is worth something. There's something valuable about being able to start a sentence with, I came to this park first with my grandfather. You can't buy that kind of loyalty. And I think it's the thing about baseball that drew me to baseball as a sport is that every building is unique. The field dimensions um, are different in every ballpark. They conform often to the urban sites that surround it. They have quirkiness in a way that you never see in a basketball or hockey arena or a football stadium. And in many ways, they really are the 10th man. That ballpark is like the 10th man. And fans of baseball tend to be fans of their ballpark. Are you almost, I mean, when do you ever see trivia questions on Twitter that say, name your five favorite arenas? Like they don't. It's always about the baseball park. And so, I loved working on Fenway because it had been a model for us when I worked on Camden Yards 10 years earlier, and it just came me that one of our benchmarks was going to be torn down, and I felt like it was sort of pulling something from the brink of death to be able to give it new life and really love the fact that fans would give you so much feedback, as they did with the seats on the Green Monster. I mean, don't go into a ballpark that's almost 100 years old, as that one was then, and think you're the expert like you're not. <laughs> the fans are the experts, so it's really important to listen to them. You mentioned fields being different sizes, and that brings to mind in baseball something you don't hear in other sports, ground rules. Every stadium has its own ground rules on how situations will be played. It makes me wonder, a lot of times the dimensions of a field can very much impact its desirability to a particular player. If I'm a left-handed power hitter, I'd love to have a short porch in right field. 
as you were going through and working with teams to design stadiums, what degree does player input have on how those stadiums are designed? Well, for sure, players have a lot of say in how it plays. And probably my most poignant memory of the influence of that is at Camden Yards, which was, of course, built from scratch. Very different working on a renovation. But Frank Robinson uh, was our manager when we were working on Camden Yards. And so not only is he the answer to the trivia question of who's the only player that's won the MVP in both leagues, but you know, he's revered all over America, but certainly in Baltimore for the world championships that he brought to that city. And Frank had played in these older parts, so he could speak with credibility that neither Larry Lucchino or I ever could about what it was like to have a small amount of foul territory and your fans close to the action and what it was like to have these uh, straight lines instead of the curved ones around the outfield and what did it mean to have a fair park. And Frank cared very much about it having a balance between being a hitter's park and a pitcher's park. He really felt strongly that it had to play fair. And so there were certainly some things that we cared a lot about in terms of bringing the novelty and uniqueness of Memorial Stadium, which Baltimore fans loved Memorial Stadium. It had seven-foot-high fences, and there's nothing more exciting than watching an outfielder rob a home run by being able to get that glove up over the fence, which you couldn't do in the multi-purpose parks when the outfield walls were 10 feet high. And so, so Frank loved the drama of those plays, but he felt very important about it playing fairly. So I think while individual players always have a voice, often you rely on someone like Frank Robinson who can speak with authority over generations of personal experience. Talking with Janet Marie Smith, and before we turn you loose, now working with the Los Angeles Dodgers, you guys are getting ready or should have already opened up a new renovation at Dodger Stadium. What has it been like? And We talk about building from scratch in Camden Yards and then all of a sudden the renovations in Atlanta and Boston and now another renovation in Los Angeles. Premium areas, fan experience, it really seems like that's really changed the game in stadium architecture over the past 15, 20 years. Well, it certainly has, and it's a particular challenge with older buildings to find opportunities to create the the so-called premium experience. Uh, But what I have especially loved about working at Dodger Stadium and working for Stan Kasten a second time, because I had worked for Stan in Atlanta, as you noted earlier, when the transformation of the Olympic Stadium to Turner Field, and when Stan became president of the Dodgers in 2012 and invited me to come and work on the renovation of Dodger Stadium, um, it, it was with a goal that we wouldn't change its signature features of being this crazy 1960s mid-century modern building with these Easter egg colors of aqua green and sea foam blue and tangerine orange, lemon yellow seats. Uh, this folded roof in the outfield wall. And what's really been fun about the project is it's nearing completion now for the 2020 season and for the All-Star Game, which, goodness, we hope we get a chance to host that as we had planned here in Los Angeles. But Stan's whole thing is like, this is for Joe Fan. Like, everything we're doing this year to try and make the ballpark feel energized and feel current with its new brethren 
is not about private clubs and not about fancy seats, but about just a fabulous experience at the ballpark without changing its look and feel. So it's just been a treat. It's, it's architecturally almost the polar opposite of Fenway Park. And it's being grand, spacious, sunny, Southern California and palm trees everywhere. Uh, and I've loved this challenge because it's been so different from the others. Do you know what the Lowe's tables around the outfield reminds me of? The first time I saw that, I was like, you know what? I'm going to play in my mind. I'm going to say in my mind that, that Janet Marie Smith came up with that off of the left field lounge. I, well, I could see how that could be a cousin of Dee Dee Noble. Um, I think a lot of people will think of him as a cousin of the Green Monster seats, too. But here in Los Angeles, we like to think of them as kind of being their own thing. <laughs> so uh, I, I hope you have a chance to come and experience them. We're we're dying to have a first pitch and get things, get the show back on the road. Well, last thing before we cut you loose, you are a graduate of Mississippi State University. You talked about going into Duty Noble. You were consulted on the new design of Duty Noble, an absolutely outstanding facility. You're joining the Hall of Fame here in the state of Mississippi. I'm curious as to kind of your thoughts on being recognized now for all that great work you've done. I have to admit, I feel uh, sort of sheepish about it. Like, look at who's in the Mississippi Sports Hall of Fame. I, uh, I, I don't, I don't belong in that class. <laughs> it's uh, like a fish out of water. But I'm thrilled. Um, I'm really humbled by the recognition, and I am thrilled. I've had a chance to work on these projects, and I'm just so grateful for for everyone who has had a hand in giving me these opportunities and for the men that I've worked for who've entrusted me with carrying out their vision, uh, in particular Larry Latino and Stan Caston, both of whom I'd already mentioned, both of whom I've worked for twice, you know, so I, I it, it's just been a kick for me and I, I love being able to say that I'm a proud graduate of Callaway High School, 1975, you know, I, I really am proud of my roots and I really do feel that they shape the way I look at buildings and look at cities and the way that I think about sort of the, the inclusiveness of the sporting world that I've uh, worked in for the last this last couple of decades. So I, I hope to represent Mississippi well in my travels, and I, I'm just really honored and, and touched by, by the way. Well, we really appreciate you taking time and spending some time with us. Well, I appreciate your call. It's, a, it's really nice to have have a chance to talk a little bit about Mississippi because I don't get that chance every day and I love it. <laughs> well, if there's anybody that can talk Mississippi, it's definitely me and Charlie. Janet Marie, once again, thank you. And, and Charlie, that's one of the things that you really don't talk about. Not only are you building great baseball stadiums, but the revitalization in municipalities across the country about what Oriole Park at Camden Yard really started. Well, it's good stuff. Good stuff as always. Janet Marie Smith, native of Jackson, Mississippi, pride of Callaway High School, and a graduate of Mississippi State, without doubt uh, one of the leading architects in Major League Baseball. And once again, I want to thank our fine folks in Henry Hamill and all the guys down with Farm Bureau. They've done a great job over the south half of Mississippi over the past week trying to get everybody's lives back in order. So until next week, I'm Bart Gregory for Charlie Winfield saying so long. You've been listening to Out of Left Field presented by Farm Bureau.